There is a dangerous false teaching that is very popular today, even among some professing Christians, that claims that God wants us to be more successful in this life. And it teaches that if you obey God's commandments, He will change your circumstances in your favor. Joel Osteen is one of its greatest proponents. And he says in his popular book, Your Best Life Now, we have to believe that God will give us favor in every circumstance. He says, perhaps you're searching for a parking spot in a crowded lot. Say, Father, I thank you for leading me and guiding me. Your favor will cause me to get a good spot. We should also expect other people to do good things for us. Olstein says, I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. Olstein's message of self-help And positive thinking is completely foreign to anything we find in Paul's letters. In fact, what we do see in Paul's teaching and in Jesus' teaching is that to be a Christian in this life, we will suffer. We're to take up our cross daily and follow the Lord. In our sermon series in 2 Timothy called Guarding the Gospel in a Godless World, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He's suffering. He's awaiting his own execution. And he writes to encourage Timothy, his spiritual son, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, not to be fearful, but to be strong, to fulfill his calling of guarding and preaching the gospel. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 where Paul exhorts Timothy to find his strength to follow this calling in his union with Christ. And part of this calling is also to train others who will faithfully teach others this gospel. And then Paul says, you must share in the suffering. The suffering of being a believer, the suffering of being a pastor. And then he gives three metaphors to describe this suffering. Well, in our text today, Paul has more to say about suffering for Christ and enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. And he challenges us to think about three examples, the example of Jesus, the example of Paul, and God's character towards believers. So follow along as I read from our text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, 
he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, this popular teaching that you can have your best life now is fundamentally false. It's unbiblical. Our best life as believers does not come in this life, in this side of glory. It doesn't come when we land the job that we were hoping to get or when we marry the spouse that we've dreamed of or we're able to buy the perfect home or retire comfortably. These, of course, are great blessings that we ought to give thanks for if the Father blesses us with them, but they do not equal glory. In fact, we're called to suffer for Christ, to suffer for the gospel in this life. And so God, through this text, tells Timothy and all of us, first, that believers are to remember Jesus Christ and the gospel in their suffering. He says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. At first, this seems kind of odd for Paul to say to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Well, of course, Timothy remembers Jesus Christ. How could he forget Jesus Christ? How could the church forget Jesus Christ? And yet, we do forget him. We forget who he really is. We forget who he is and what he has done. We forget where he is. How are we to remember him? Well, Paul gives fundamental truths about him that when they are deeply considered encompass the gospel. First, his name, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name that was given to him by God, by the angel, when he was born. And this name means God is our salvation. It refers to Jesus as God, but also coming to save us from our sins. And then Christ, that refers to Jesus as the anointed one of the Old Testament, who comes filled with the Holy Spirit to redeem God's people from their sins. But then he says, risen from the dead. And this, of course, refers to Jesus' rising from the dead three days after he suffered and, and he died on the cross for our sins. And we worship on this day, the Christian Sabbath on Sunday, the Lord's Day, because we are remembering that he rose from the dead. What does his resurrection mean? Well, first, he mean, it means that he did suffer and indeed die. And that was part of God's plan from the very beginning to come and save us. He lived a righteous life, fulfilling all the commandments for us to provide us with his record of righteousness, since God required perfect righteousness. But then he also went to the cross in order to take our guilt and shame upon himself and to receive the judgment that we deserved in our place through his suffering and through his bleeding and dying. But all of this would be for naught if he had not risen from the dead. 
That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Why is it in vain if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Well, it's because the resurrection confirmed that he was indeed God, the Messiah. That he had accomplished all that he came to do for us and that he had victory for us over sin and death and the devil. And this term, risen, is a participle communicating that he still is risen. He still is alive in heaven. And you see, that communicates to Timothy and all of us here still on this fallen planet In this fallen world, it communicates that in the midst of our suffering, Jesus has triumphed over death and sin for us. He's alive. He's reigning in heaven for us. And we too will triumph over sin and death and the devil. You see, what Paul is communicating is that suffering and the cross comes first, just as it did for Jesus. But then the resurrection and victory. First the crown of thorns, then the crown of glory. This is the pattern of life for believers who are united to Christ. He lives in us and we're conformed to his image and we must bear our crosses each day. Not in order to atone for our sins. Jesus did that already. But this is the pattern of obedience. This is the pattern of sanctification. If we're to be like him, we must suffer. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus also reminds us that we have the hope of our own bodily resurrection someday. When Christ returns, our souls will be united to a new, immortal, perfect human body. And we will live on a new earth with Jesus and with each other forever. And that will be our new best life. And then Paul says, we're to remember that Jesus is, point C, offspring of David. Timothy and all believers were to be reminded of God's covenant promises. That Jesus came as the Messiah, as the seed of David. He was to be the ultimate king. The promise was given to David that one of his offspring, his his seed would be on his throne forever. And of course, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he said, Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Jesus fulfilled that promise. After his resurrection, he ascended to heaven He ascended to his throne and he's now building his spiritual kingdom, his spiritual temple by living and reigning in his people's hearts. And we await for his return, the return of our king. But in addition to this, Paul cites another example. Timothy and all believers are to remember in their suffering. And this is point two. We're to see from our text that believers are to remember Paul and the power of God's word in their suffering. Paul says in the first half of verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Now as we know, 
Paul was in a Roman prison because of his preaching. He's been imprisoned before, but this particular time was far more harsh. He was not under house arrest. He was chained. And he knew he was going to be executed soon. Most biblical historians believe that this was during the latter time of Nero's rule. Emperor Nero was known for his ruthless persecution of Christians. He fulfilled his sadistic desires by persecuting them. He blamed Christians for the fire that he started in Rome. He murdered Christians by setting them aflame, using them as human torches in his parties and events. And he sent them to be eaten by lions in the Colosseums. But Paul says here that he was bound with chains as a criminal. That word criminal in the Greek is a very rare word. It was specifically reserved for violent criminals, for murderers, for robbers and muggers. In other words, Paul was being treated like the worst criminal, even though he was innocent, even though he was a Roman citizen. And we must be reminded that we should expect the world to treat us no better than they treated Jesus, than they treated Paul. Earlier, Paul recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he had far more imprisonments than the other apostles with countless beatings and often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was in danger from false brothers toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered for the gospel. Now even though Paul was called to suffer and he eventually became a martyr, he knew that this did not deter God's word. He knew the gospel would continue to spread. Why? Because he says so in the second half of verse 9, the word of God is not bound. The word of God was spreading. Even though many others were incarcerated and kept from preaching, the Bible kept going forward. Indeed, during Paul's first imprisonment, he talks about how God used his imprisonment even to uh, convert some of the Praetorian Guard. That it served to advance the gospel. He says in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, that the whole Imperial Guard and all the rest, that his imprisonment they knew was for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, he says, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. And so, Paul was confident, saying that the word of God is not unchained, even though he was chained. He was causing it to go forth through others, and in mysterious ways. And we read in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is not bound. You know, in the 1930s, Stalin 
ordered the purge of all Bibles and all believers in Stavropol, Russia. This order was carried out with vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated and multitudes of believers were sent to the gulags and they died there as enemies of the state. But after the fall of communism, the missionary organization Co-Mission sent a mission team to Stavropol. And when the team experienced difficulty getting Bibles that they had shipped into that city, someone mentioned that there was a warehouse outside of the city where all these confiscated Bibles were that were stored since Stalin's day. And so they went to this warehouse and they found the Bibles and they asked if they could remove them and distribute them and they were given permission And so a truck was obtained and several Russian people helped load these Bibles. Well, one of the helpers was a young man, a skeptic. He was hostile towards Christianity. He was an agnostic. And he came only to get a day's wage. But as they were loading the Bibles, this young man disappeared. And they found him in a corner of the warehouse, weeping. He had slipped away, hoping to quietly steal a Bible for himself. And what he found shook him to the core. Inside the page of the Bible that he picked up had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her personal Bible. He had stolen the very Bible that belonged to his grandmother when she was persecuted under Stalin and sent to the Gulag. His grandmother probably prayed for him and prayed for her city. God's word can no more be chained than God himself. God will cause the gospel to spread regardless of suffering, regardless of the restrictions of some preachers and believers. And it's because of this, Paul didn't allow himself to be discouraged about his imprisonment. He knew God was using it in the life of other believers to bring them courage, to bring them boldness. And he says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here we see Paul telling Timothy and all believers, endure for the sake of the elect. This is what Paul did. He knew that God had elected, God had sovereignly predestined before the beginning of time who would receive the word and who would respond to the word in repentance and faith. He had determined this, not because of anything good in them, but because of his own pleasure, his own will. And so Paul did not think his imprisonment would hinder God's work in bringing the elect to salvation through his word, the gospel. Paul, though, never confused election and predestination with fatalism. You see, because fatalism erases human responsibility. But Paul knew God used us, uses us. He sovereignly determines the means and the ends. And therefore, Paul's perseverance mattered. His endurance mattered. He would be used by God to strengthen the saints, to encourage other believers to be a witness to non-believers. Well, finally, 
Paul states, or rather cites, the final truth that Timothy and all believers are to remember in the midst of their suffering. And so my third point that I think God wants us to see in our text is that believers are to remember these comforting and challenging truths and God's character in their suffering. What are these comforting and challenging truths? Well, we see them in verses 11 through 13. Paul quotes what must have been an early church hymn. Many believers were accustomed to this hymn, and that's why he says it's a trustworthy saying, because he knew a lot of the people he was writing to would would know this hymn. And we find at least four stanzas of this hymn and this saying. Each stanza begins with an if that describes an action with the following phrase that gives Christ's response. And so there are four conditional sentences here. The first one is, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. And this refers to what happens when a person is converted. We die to Christ, or we die to ourselves rather, and we live to Christ. Paul says this in Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with Him. All believers died with Him in the sense that when our sins were imputed to Him and He died, our guilt, our condemnation, our old nature was put to death. And when he was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. We received new resurrected life and a new resurrected nature. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy, or 2 Corinthians rather, 5, 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So believers live this new life already in Christ. We're not perfect. God is at work in us. When He returns or when we go to be with Him, we will be made perfect. But we have begun this new life. We've been identified with Christ in His death and resurrection. The second stanza is a challenge saying, if we endure, we will reign with Christ. That term endure is in the present tense And it challenges us that we're to continue to endure. We're to continue to persevere to the very end. It means hold your ground in the midst of adversity and affliction and suffering. We will have to endure the hatred of the world. We will have to endure tribulation. We will have to endure great suffering at times and temptation. We will have to endure denying ourselves in order to do good. And this will continue throughout our lives. But God will cause true believers to persevere to the end. And when we die, notice here, we don't just enter into His rest. No, we will reign with Christ. What does that mean? We're going to be co-regents with Christ. He's going to share His reign with us. That's amazing. But the sobering flip side of this is point C. If we deny Him, He will deny us. This third stanza speaks of apostasy. 
In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is horrible. It's frightening. It's sobering. It's apostasy. But let me tell you what apostasy is not. Apostasy is not what Peter did. He denied Jesus three times, temporarily. But right after that, he wept, didn't he? And he repented, and he returned, and he embraced Christ, and Jesus reinstated him. But here, what this means is disowning and repudiating Jesus permanently with the full knowledge of his claims and benefits. It's a permanent denial of Jesus. It's the kind of apostasy that we see in Hebrews chapter 6 when the author says, when a person has once been enlightened who has tasted of the goodness of God but has fallen away. In other words, this is describing someone who has never been converted. What an ominous declaration. If someone disowns Jesus, he will also disown them. Settled apostasy will mean eternal disownment by God. But here's the comfort for believers in the fourth stanza. If we are faithful or faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This stanza refers to the temporary faithlessness of Christians like Peter, like us. We are faithless at times. We lapse into faithlessness. And what a comfort it is to know that even though we waver at times, God's love for us never falters. He acts faithfully. He will be faithful to his promises. Why? Because he has elected us before the beginning of time. It was his choice. And he died. Jesus came and died for all of our sins, all of our faithlessness. And they cannot be held against us anymore because Jesus received the judgment for those sins. And he cannot change his mind about us. We have the righteousness of Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. And so if he were to be faithless towards us, then he would be actually denying his own nature. The Lord promises to sustain his people to the very end. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that we were his sheep. We hear his voice. We follow him. And he gives us eternal life. And we will never perish. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And so, what does God want us to take away from this text by way of application to our lives? After he's given us these three examples, let me give you at least three ways that we can apply these truths to our lives. First and foremost, number one, remember to keep the gospel of the risen King Jesus Christ the main thing. In the midst of our suffering, we're to think of Christ. We're to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. 
You see, because we suffer from gospel amnesia, we forget the gospel. We begin to rely on ourselves. And so each day, we need to remember who Jesus is. He's God the Savior. He's the Messiah, the Anointed One. He rose from the dead. He died for our sins. He lived a righteous life for us. He ascended to heaven. He fulfilled all of prophecy. He's not a fictitious person. He's real. He's in heaven right now reigning for us. This we must remember. He is our king. He is our risen king. And Paul knew that this was his gospel. Did you notice that? Of course, he had a special commission, being an apostle, the chief messenger of the gospel. But there is a sense in which we also should have ownership of this gospel. It's our gospel. We've been entrusted with it. It's a deposit that God has given to us. And so I ask you, do you find the gospel so precious? Do you find Christ so precious that you see your life and your mission identified with him, identified with this good news and what he's accomplished. The risen Jesus, the fulfillment of all scripture is what life is all about every day. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Put it in front and center of your thoughts every day. The gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, and where he is right now, and what he's doing right now. He is alive, he's at work. Secondly, God has reinforced in this passage that being a believer does not mean that we will have our best life now. See, if we obey God, we still won't avoid bad things happening to us. If we obey God, we won't have everything that we want. No, we're called to walk the pathway of suffering, to take up our cross daily and follow Him. However, in the midst of these valleys that we go through, in the midst of this fallen world, we have Jesus. We have His Word. God has furnished with us for us everything that we need as we go through our valleys. He's given us His presence, His joy, His peace. He supplies us with good gifts. But we simply need to keep in mind, though, that on this earth as Christians, we're not promised our best life now. We will suffer, and we shouldn't be surprised when we do. But God says to us in Romans 8, 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And so he's taught us, point number two, you will suffer in this life for Christ, but the word of God will go forth and be effective for salvation. You see, your suffering won't hinder the word of God. Your suffering is part of the work of the word of God, sanctifying you and speaking to others of its power. You see, as people see you suffer, us suffer, they see the gospel because we give praise to God. We submit to Him. And we're proclaiming the joy and the peace we have with Him in the midst of our suffering. So the Word of God will go forth as we rely on Him. As people see us deny ourselves and suffer for Christ and proclaim the gospel. God's Word is not chained 
We're to remember what Paul said in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thirdly, the Christian life is not a sprint, but a marathon. Take hope and comfort that God will empower and enable you to run this race and finish it. Even when you are faithless, He will be faithful. So point number three, if you are alive in Christ, God will cause you to endure in suffering to the end. He said here, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. See, if you're a true believer, you won't apostatize. You may temporarily be unfaithful to the Lord, but you will persevere because Christ is alive in you. You have a new nature. You will endure. You will reign with him in heaven someday. But this begs the question, doesn't it? Are you alive in Christ? Have you truly been born again? Has your heart been changed? What does that mean? When a person becomes a Christian, God has regenerated them by His Holy Spirit. He gives them a new nature. And when that happens, you recognize that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. And you turn from relying on your self-righteousness and you rely on Christ and His work alone for your salvation. You rely on His righteousness for your standing before God. You rely on His atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. You believe that He died and rose from the dead and He's reigning in heaven forever. And you know you've been united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. And so you're actively seeking to put sin to death in your life and to obey His laws. His resurrection life is in you, empowering you to have hope and joy and to live for Him. And it causes you to strive to look to Him each day for your joy and satisfaction. You see, your life is bound with Christ's life. And so, if that is true for you in some measure, then you are Christ. And the work that He's begun in you, He will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. So ask yourself, am I alive in Christ? Has that occurred in my life? Make sure by praying today, asking the Lord to forgive you, asking the Lord to come into your life, asking the Lord to give you faith. Enduring means pressing on in active obedience, suffering and self-denial. So rather than relying on this pop theology of the power of positive thinking and finding your best life now, God tells us we're to rest in God's promises. We're to rest in these examples that he's given us as we face suffering. These remembrances are essential for standing and suffering. Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive now. Paul suffered. We all suffer, but God's word is not bound And God's character towards us is faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this encouragement in the midst of our suffering. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us to know that your word is not bound 
in our suffering, but in fact works through our suffering that you will bring your people, your elect, to yourself. And you're going to use us as your instruments. And Lord, you are faithful. Faithful, Lord, to help us to endure because we are in Christ and his life is in us. Oh Lord, fortify us with these truths as we live for you this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.